The scripture reading this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectations and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Oh, Father, our heart's desire is to experience the authenticity of what Paul just said to us about his own heart. To live is Christ and to die is gain wrestling because he wanted to die and go to be with you and wanted to stay and serve the church. What a great wrestling match in the human soul. Would that that would be our wrestling match, oh God. Would that it would be that and not between such low things. To die and be with Christ, one great passion. To stay and live for Christ to advance the faith of His people, another great passion. And which we shall experience, we do not know, but one or the other, let it triumph. Oh God, I pray that you would beget this kind of valuing of Christ in our lives as we open this text. In His great and glorious name, I pray. Amen. We're in a series on worship. This is the second Sunday into it. And last Sunday, the main point was that there is a stunning silence in the New Testament about the outward place and forms of worship and a radical intensification of the inner Godward experience of worship. So a silence almost entire about the detailed outworkings of worship in form and place and a radical intensification of what the inner reality of this thing called worship is is to be. Let me refresh your memory with texts that support those two claims. The silence is marked by the fact that the gathered life of the church in the New Testament is never called worship. And, secondly, the main word for worship in the Old Testament is never used, almost, in the epistles. Proskuneo, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, 
26 times in the Gospels, 22 times in Revelation, and virtually never in the epistles that prescribe life for us in this period of time. So there's this stunning silence about formal worship in the New Testament in any prescriptive way. Then there's this intensification of worship on the inside of our lives. For example, John 4, Jesus says, The hour is coming, and now is, when you will not worship God in Samaria or Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. Not Samaria, spirit. Not Jerusalem, truth. Get it? Location is not the issue anymore. Reality is the issue. Spirit and truth are the issue. Or Matthew 15, 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's at the dome or it's at the meal or it's anxious about tomorrow. It's just elsewhere. It's far from me. In vain do they worship me. So that text says there is a formal moving of the lips. There is a positioning of the body. There are various liturgical acts that you can go through and it not be worship. Vain, empty. Because worship is essentially an affair of the heart. It always has been. I should have stressed that last week. Somebody helped me and... And, and corrected me by saying, did you, did you give the impression that the Old Testament was merely formalistic? And I said, maybe I did, and I didn't mean to. The prophets always stung the people of Israel with their hypocrisy and their outwardness, absent inwardness. But the difference is this amazing silence about those outward trappings in the New Testament, which were very explicit in the Old Testament, and the intensification that is there in the New Testament. A third illustration of that is Romans 12:1, which we'll come back to in two weeks. That our whole life, the presentation of our bodies to God for His use in daily service is our spiritual service of what? Worship. Now today, the question is this. If worship in the New Testament essentially is not an outward location or posture or liturgy or act, not essentially that, but essentially something inside, what is that? That's what we want to ask today. What is that thing inside? What happens in here where only God can see until it finds some expression? What is it? Now... I take it as a given this morning that whether worship is inner or outward in expression, and both are real and both are important, whichever one is engaged in at the moment, only inner or inner plus outer, worship is a magnifying of God. 
Choose a word. Magnifying is not the only word you could use. You could use the word glorify. You could use the word honor. You could use the word reverence. You could use the word esteem. You could use the word admire. You could use the word adore. You could use the word make great. You could use the word laud. You could use the word praise. Dozens of words you could use to say that when it happens, God and His Son and the Holy Spirit are made to look great. Their greatness is revealed and expressed. Or if you like worship as a way of helping you remember what worship is, worship, the worship of God, His worth, His value is revealed and expressed in worship. If that's true, then the question becomes, what inner experience does that? What inner experience expresses and reveals the greatness or the worth or the beauty or the glory or the magnificence or the perfections of God? What is that? Now, the answer is in the text that was just read to you, and I invite you to reopen your Bibles or keep them open to Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 in particular. And I want you to see here some tremendously important foundational truths about our understanding of God and worship here at Bethlehem why we do what we do and why we feel the way we feel about it. First of all, notice in verse 20, Paul's radical, ultimate mission and passion in life. He says, It is my earnest expectation and my hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but With all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, here it is, be exalted. Or your version might say honored, or it might say magnified. That Christ would always be magnified, exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul is saying that his hope and passion is that what he does with his body is always worship. That what he does with his body is always magnifying God, showing God to be great and magnificent and and exalted. That's worship. He wants his body always to be doing that which exalts and magnifies God. That's his life passion. So the question becomes for Paul, for us now to Paul, what kind of inner experience exalts Christ like that, moves the body like that, expresses that kind of magnifying of Christ? What's the essence of worship, in other words? And the answer is given in verse 21, especially by the way verse 21 is related to verse 20. So let's put on our 
thinking caps for a moment here and our glasses so that we see the wonder of what is revealed in the connection between verse 20 and 21. First of all, notice that the words life and death in verse 20. Do you see those? That Christ shall be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. So keep your finger on those two words. And then go to verse 21 and notice the same two words. For me to live, that corresponds to life in verse 20, is Christ. And to die, that corresponds to death in verse 20, is gain. So you got two pairs. You got life and live and death and die. And the connection between these two words is that tremendously important little word for or because. My expectation and hope is that Christ will be exalted whether by my life or my death because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that's worth thinking about for about an hour. And I've given it a lot more than an hour's worth over the years because these kinds of things are absolutely foundational. If, if you get what these two verses are talking about, your whole life will be changed. Your whole preaching style as a preacher will be changed. Your whole writing ministry will be changed. Your whole family life will be changed. Everything changes if you get this word for here. So let's get it. Let's take these pairs one at a time. Let's take the death pair first and ask how the little word connecting verse 21 to 20 reveals the essence of the inner Godward experience of worship or of magnifying Christ. Now, doing that, let's just leave out the word life for a minute and read it like this. My expectation and hope is that Christ will be exalted in my body by death. For to me to die is gain. Christ will be exalted in my dying when my dying is for me gain. Now, I should be able to quit and go home right there. And you just spend the next hour thinking about what that implies. Christ will be exalted in my dying when my dying is for me gain. Why? Why is that? Verse 23 gives the answer, or part of the answer at least. There he says, my desire is to depart, that is to die. My desire is to die and be with Christ, for that is very much better. In other words, the reason death is gain is because death gains Christ. 
To depart is to be with Christ, which is very much better than anything this world has to offer. Better than spouse, better than children, better than career, better than retirement, better than sport, game. And he says, if you understand the connection between 20 and 21, experiencing Christ as gain in your dying, verse 20, magnifies Christ in verse 20. The experiencing of him as gain in 21 is the way you magnify him in verse 20. So, my answer is that the essence of worship, the inner Godward essence of worship is cherishing Christ as gain. The inner essence of worship is cherishing Christ as gain. More gain than life can offer. More gain than family, more gain than career, more gain than fame, more gain than food, more gain than friends. To the degree that you count Christ as your gain, above all other things, to that degree is he magnified in your life and in your death. The essence of worship is experiencing Christ as gain. Or, if this is sounding familiar, the words we love to use around here are, the essence of worship is a savoring of Christ. It is a treasuring of Christ. It is a being satisfied with Christ. This is the inner essence of worship. Because Paul says... And I don't want you to believe this because I say it. I want you to see this so that you can give an account for our theology. If my theology is not biblical theology, it is worthless. If you can't find it in texts, don't believe it. What I'm trying to do essentially in this sermon is give you the textual foundation for the slogan... God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. And if you don't see it in this text, you'll never see it in the Bible. Paul says, experiencing Christ as gain, as treasure, as satisfying, is what exalts Christ in his body when he dies. If you don't see that, you will reject my entire theology. And if it's not there, I have built a life on sand. That's a big claim. My life is built on sand if what I'm saying here is not true. Christ is magnified in my death when my death, in my death, I am satisfied in Him. Another way to say it is this. The essence of praising Christ is prizing Christ. The essence of praising Christ is not what you do with your mouth. It's what you do with your heart.
If you lift your voice and say, Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. And you don't seek him. You're a liar. You're a hypocrite. It's what happens in here. Is there a prizing here inside? Is there a cherishing? Is there a treasuring? Is he gain to you? If he's not, you can't worship. In about three weeks, I will preach a sermon on what do you do if you come on Sunday morning and you don't feel any of that? Okay? I will preach a sermon on that. And the levels of worship and how we struggle through deadness at times in our lives. But mark this down as the goal of your life, folks. Christ is magnified in your death to the degree that you find him gain in your death. Now that's that's the death pair. And it's the most powerful. But let's look at the life pair to see if this is confirmed. In verse 20 it says, My expectation is that Christ be exalted in my life. I want Christ to be exalted, worshipped by my life. Verse 21. For, so explain this to me, Paul. Explain this to me, how Christ is exalted in your life. For, to me, to live is Christ. So Christ is worshipped, or Christ is exalted, to the degree that Living is Christ. What does that mean? Living is Christ. What does that mean? The answer is given in chapter 3, verse 8. Go there with me if you want to see it for yourself. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. And watch for the word gain again. This time not in dying, but in living. Verse 8, chapter 3, Paul says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value. Now, you could replace that with the word gain if you wanted to. You don't need to. It's coming in a minute. In view of the gain or the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things... Now, yet while I'm living, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There's the word again. He said to die was gain in 121. And now he's saying there is a way to live such that Christ is the gain of your living. Namely, count everything as loss in comparison with his value. To live as Christ means count everything as loss now in this life in comparison to the value of gaining Christ. To live as Christ means experiencing Christ as gain now and not just in death. 
So let me see if I can sum up what we've seen in the connection between verses 20 and 21. Paul's point here is that life and death for a Christian are acts of worship. Life and death are acts of worship. That is, they are meant to exalt Christ. If you ask the question this week, or if you've asked in your past, in some dark night of the soul, or some bright, beautiful, sunny day, why am I here? What's the point of living? Why was I created? Why did my mother bring me forth? Man is born for affliction like the sparks fly upward. Why am I here? The answer is, you are here in your living and in your dying to make Christ look great. That's why you're here. You are here to make Christ look great. How? By counting Him gain. Now, above everything life can offer, and when you die and lose everything that life can offer, He will be gain. And until you arrive at that point, there's no worship in your life. Worship at its essence is not an outward thing. It's an inward cherishing of Christ as gain in living and in dying. And when we are satisfied in Him, let me use my favorite words, He is glorified in us. I hope that every time you hear that for the next 15 years of my ministry, God willing, you will not say, oh, neat piper phrase. You will say, blessed be God Almighty for revealing such things to us in Philippians 1, 20 and 21. Now I want to close with some implications. If this is so, if the essence of worship is a cherishing of Christ, a treasuring of Christ, a being satisfied with Christ so that He looks glorious and is seen to be valuable and worthy, then what does it imply for our worship on Sunday morning? Three implications and a pointer towards two weeks from now. Number one, if Christ is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, and therefore the essence of worship is to be satisfied in the gain that Christ is to us, the pursuit of joy in God is not optional. It's your highest duty in worship. The pursuit of joy in God is not optional. Now, the reason I stress this is because there are millions of, of Christians throughout the world and in America who have absorbed the popular notion that an act is morally defective to the degree that it is motivated by the desire to be happy even in God. There is hanging in the air and has been for 
hundreds of years since Immanuel Kant, the tacit view that to pursue a thing for the joy that you might find in it is morally defective motivation. And that the highest motivation is selfless motivation with no benefit coming to you at all in what you seek. Now take this as a radical and absolutely true sentence. To the degree that that view flourishes, worship perishes. Because the essence of worship is finding joy in God. The essence of worship is being satisfied in God. The essence of worship is finding gain in Christ. And if you buy into the notion that you mustn't seek any gain, <laughs> where are you going to go in the Bible? Where are you going to turn for biblical truth when it lies such on the face of it that to die is gain and that's why I want to die? Reject this with all your heart that we might worship together. We don't want to be among congregations that go about their duty thing, performing their external thing, so that they might benefit another, namely God, rather than let Him be the awesome benefactor of us needy beneficiaries on Sunday morning. So my first implication and application of this truth is, let us come to this gathering every Sunday morning starved for God. As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul longs for thee, O God. That's what I want on your heart as you come into this room. I don't expect you to come to give me anything on Sunday morning. I expect to be here and lift up God who gives you everything on Sunday morning. Number two. Another implication, if the essence of worship is being satisfied in God and counting Christ as gain, then worship becomes radically God-centered. Nothing makes God out to be more supreme and central than a gathered people persuaded that not money, not prestige, not leisure, not family, not job, not health, not sports, not toys, not friends satisfy, but only God. Nothing makes God out to be more supreme and more central than hearts like that. People who are persuaded that God alone satisfies the aching void of our hearts. And believe me, you've got an aching void there. You might have filled it up with a lot of junk to try to numb yourself and medicate yourself. Never work. It'll never work 
especially in your dying week. You were made for God. And the people who know how to worship are the neediest of all people. Not the satisfied people. Not the people who've got it all together. Not the people that are home free. Not the people that feel no ache. The worshiping people are the broken people. Whose hearts are desperate. They're desperate for something to happen in their lives that will come and fill the void that's just been created by some horrendous crisis or just by the recognition of our own absolute unworthiness before God. Those will be worshiping people. I want empty people. I want needy people on Sunday morning because they will lift up their voices in their hands when we sing songs like... My face is all I seek. And you'll, you'll hear something in a congregation like that that you don't hear in nice, formal congregations where you're taught to just do everything just so. You'll just hear desperation. And when God hears desperation toward Him as the only gain and the only satisfying power, He loves it. Oh, how He delights in Worship like that. We're not confused why we come here. The songs, the prayers, the sermons, they're not traditions. They're not mere duties. They are means of getting to God and means of getting God to us. I preach. Chuck leads in worship songs. We pray in order that God might get to us and we might get to God and a transaction might happen that satisfies the soul deeply. One of the reasons I stress this point is because if we as a church begin to stress worship as a giving to God, The result that I have seen very subtly over time is that not God remains at the center, but the quality of our giving. Are we singing worthily of the Lord? Is our instrumental playing of the quality fitting a gift for the Lord? Is the preaching of a caliber as to be a suitable offering to the Lord. And little by little, and this is so subtle, little by little, the utter indispensability of the Lord is replaced by the quality of our performances. And we even start to define excellence And power, we say it was a powerful service, not in terms of whether hearts flowered before God, needing Him and closing with Him and communing with Him, but whether there was technical distinction in our artistic acts. That is deadly. And I am on a quest to find a way to do and to describe worship that cuts it at its root. Nothing keeps God at the center of worship like 
the biblical conviction that the essence of worship is heartfelt satisfaction in Him. And that the pursuit of that satisfaction is why we're here. Last implication. If the essence of worship is a cherishing of Christ as gain, this protects the primacy of worship as an end in itself. It protects the primacy of worship as an end in itself. Let me explain. This is very important. Very important. Because our hearts are deceivable. They are so corrupt. If the essence of worship is satisfaction in God, then worship, at its essence, cannot be done as a means to something else. You can't say to God, I want to be satisfied in you so that you will give me something. You can't say it because then you've really said, I'm not satisfied in you. I want the thing. Worship at its essence terminates on God, period. It's over when it arrives at the throne of God and our affections have united with Him as the object of our affection and love and He has become our gain, our treasure, our satisfaction. It can't be the means to anything. And I'll tell you, in the American church today, that is not understood or as far as I can tell, believed. Because, is it not true that for thousands of people, we worship in order to raise money? We worship in order to attract crowds. We worship in order to heal hurts. We worship in order to recruit workers. We worship in order to improve church morale. We worship in order to give talented musicians an opportunity to fulfill their calling. We worship in order to teach our children about righteousness. We worship in order to help marriages stay together. We worship in order to evangelize the lost. We worship in order to motivate people for service projects. We worship in order for good family feeling to be in the sanctuary. And all of that bears witness to the fact that we don't know what we're doing. I cannot say to my wife, I delight in you so much, Noel, so that you'll cook supper tonight. Can I? I delight in you so much so that you'll make a really good dinner. What's wrong with that? It's a lie, that's why. It's a lie. I delight in the dinner. I delight in the dinner if I say that. I can't look at Benjamin and say, I love playing ball with you so that you'll cut the grass. And that's the way millions so-called worship. I'll show up. I'll sing the songs. I'll try to have right feelings if you heal my kid so that you'll grow our church, so that you'll heal the marriage, so that, so that, so that, so that, so that. And Jesus becomes a stepping stone to what we love. Worship 
is an end in itself if it is understood as the inner Godward delighting in Christ as gain. Now, it is true that all of those good things advance in church that connects like that. That's true. But if we make God, almighty God, a means to those ends instead of being the end himself, where our affections terminate, we do not worship. We use the almighty to get what we worship. The last point is not a point, but a signal for what's coming in two weeks. If the essence of worship is a cherishing of Christ as gain, this explains why Paul says all of life is worship. But that's the message on November 30th. Between now and then... Next Sunday morning, we're going to gather and we're going to enjoy God. And yes, there will be unbelievers among us. And yes, we want them saved so that our delight in God will be multiplied as it is expanded into their delight in God. But when we stand before the living God at the Great Hall at Bethel College, oh, may our delight in God be Real. And to that end, would you pray this week as you've never prayed before, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you all our days. Psalm 90, verse 14. Oh God, that's our heart's desire. And I know that it takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit to do it. And I ask for you to come. You're dismissed.